The following program is an abridged audio version of the streaming video talk show, A Wonderful Chaos. The hosts are Andy Chaliff and Bambos Dimitriou. The format is entirely casual, unscripted conversation. If you'd like to watch a live taping or participate with your comments in real time, subscribe to A Wonderful Chaos on YouTube, Facebook, Periscope, or Twitch. When you're a prosecutor, the most important thing is being ethical. The process is as important as any result. Let's say there's a case that I read that doesn't support my position, but supports the defendants. I'm required to turn over that case to the defense attorney, or I interview a witness and the witness tells me something that harms my case. I immediately write it down and turn it over to the defense attorney because my responsibility is only the truth. It's not the outcome and make sure that whatever I have or see, the defendant has a fair trial. It's a wonderful chaos. And the atheist pray? It's a wonderful chaos, and we like it that way. It's a wonderful chaos, and we like it that way. It's a wonderful chaos, and we like it that way. We're with Brian Shern. We're going to be discussing 30 years of prosecuting criminals in Los Angeles. And he's a childhood friend of Andy's. He is a childhood so friend of Andy's. We're going to be into that shit. Yeah, yeah you're going to find out some dirty, dirty secrets. We're going to do that on the next hour. Wonderful chaos. Bye-bye. Uh, so we're laughing because Andy says goodbye. <laughs> yeah, that was the shortest show ever, 30 Bye, seconds. Bye, guys. Brian, from like he was a lawyer when he came out of out of the womb because basically I knew him in, in, in high school and he was even in the debate team of, of that school. So he'd always have note cards that he would be collecting. And then the note cards would be in preparation for uh, competitions with other schools, which would have arguments. So you'd have to learn how to argue every side of, and I don't know how they came to the topics they were discussing, but so he was going to be a lawyer like right from the start. So um, not only a lawyer, a prosecutor. And for the last 30 years, he's been a prosecutor at the Los Angeles courthouse, which you got to imagine if you're going to choose a courthouse, it's going to have some pretty crazy type of cases. Then they're going to come through Los Angeles. So with that, are you OK to? Yeah, let's do it. Here we go. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Brian. Thank Hello, you for Brian. having me. Thanks for having me. Earliest memory, embarrassing <laughs> moment with Andy Shalev. Please bring oh, it on. Wow. Um, you know, Andy, Andy is a kid. Uh, Andy's very humble. What you should know about Andy is Andy was a great athlete. What I, when, when I think of Andy, the first thing I think of is Andy and track. Mm. I remember when I watched Andy and I was blown away. And, and in my household, my dad, as Andy knows, is consumer sports. Yeah. And Andy on the track, when you watch Andy and track, Andy was fabulous. In fact, Andy was so good that I think he was the only kid in the grade who participated in sports uh, at his college, which is not an easy thing to do in the United States. Andy was a great track athlete. And Andy could have done other things, too, but I think you just focused on track. 
Yeah. And I think what, you know, what you said, it kind of brought tears to my eyes because your dad followed me so much that I got kind of the love and support I didn't get from my own dad through him. So Mm -hmm. tears come up in me because I I remember him. He would look at the newspaper and see my track scores and he'd know my scores and how I compared to the week before or the month before. And and it was like it's sad even to feel into it because it was really like he was genuinely interested in encouraging and just showing a lot of love. So, yeah, I really uh, thank you for sharing that. It's uh, it's pretty beautiful. And we would talk about Andy's times, my dad and I all the time, by the way, Mm -hmm. like it was a, it was a topic of conversation because I think Andy was the only college athlete we also knew. Uh, But yeah, so uh, I remember that like it was yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful memory. Yeah. Yeah, I have a million questions, mm-hmm. but let's let's just begin with the journey. And you want to go with one? You got it? Yeah, out of all the jobs that you could have done, <laughs> why this? Yeah. I mean, I mean, let's be honest, this is a shit job. Like honestly. I mean, going yeah. go, going to work and having to deal with mm. some of the monstrosities people doing out in the world and then how, how like wow. That's what's cringing. A- it's a great question, and I, I can I remember the answer still vividly. My dad was a prosecutor, and mm. as it's the only job in the law where every decision you make, it isn't about a client. It's about trying to do what's right. And when I got out of law school, my first job for only four months was that I made a lot of money. I did pretty well in law school, and I went to a big law firm. And this law firm... I was. I only handled one case. There was this L-tryptophan, which you find in Turkey, and people were taking the supplement of L-tryptophan to help them sleep. But unfortunately, some people that took it were dying or having horrible side effects. We represented the manufacturer, my law firm, and I was participating in depositions where I, my heart would break for these people that were so sick And I was having nightmares because we were trying to limit their damages. That was what our client needed because we had the manufacturer. And I was telling my father, uh, I I can't do this. This is just, uh, I, I, I don't like what I'm doing. I feel very bad about myself. And then the district attorney's office was hiring. And I'm like, this is more for me. Um, it's, I can be ethical. Um, I, don't have all my, my only client is the truth, you know? So in my job, if I don't think the evidence is there, I don't prosecute. Um, if I don't think that we can prove it, even if I think the person is guilty, we don't prosecute. I only, we only prosecute cases where we have the evidence and I've made relationships with so many victims and their families over the years, uh, by being a good listener, I hope. And by, trying my best for them to have some sense of justice. And our job is a lot more than just the courtroom. We're often psychologists and Mm. social workers because they're grieving and we're the person they have to reach out to the only person in order to help them. And I, and I've always taken that responsibility really seriously. Like even behind the scenes, the word ethical came up several times and I'm wondering how do you define that? Great, great, great questions. Um, when you're a prosecutor, the most important thing is being ethical. It, it's nothing else comes close. 
And what it means is when you're a prosecutor, the process is as important as any result. So I'm legal. Let's say there's a case that I read that doesn't support my position, but supports the defendants. I'm required to turn over that case to the defense attorney, or I interview a witness and the witness tells me something that harms my case. I immediately write it down and turn it over to the defense attorney because my responsibility is only the truth. It's not the outcome. Mm. Now, obviously, I'm not going to prosecute somebody if I'm not convinced that they're responsible for the crime and there needs to be accountability for whatever decision they made. But um, my first responsibility always is to tell the truth and make sure that whatever I have or see, uh, the defendant has a fair trial. Yeah. Like, can, can you describe um, a gruesome trial that you that you had yeah. that you found really difficult? I've done about 100 trials. I'll tell you my first murder trial. Okay. Um, my second year as a DA, I'd only tried one felony case. And um, most of my career has been in our gang unit. Before I even did anything, my second felony, I was very inexperienced, very green. There was a murder case and they had no one to try it. So my boss went up to me and said, Brian, can you do it? I'm like, I don't think I know what I'm doing. He's like, there's nobody else. There's nobody else. I'm like, okay. And the facts were it was a dice game. And, you know, these these gangsters were playing dice. And this guy, and I still remember his moniker, it was Refugee, won a bunch of money. And this guy was really pissed. So he came back, left the dice game, came back, and he uh, murdered Refugee. And it was the mother's second kid who'd been killed by gang fire. And during the trial, I became so close with his mother. During closing argument, and I'll just, it was a very tough case. During closing argument, she had a stroke and we had to stop and the ambulance came and took her to the hospital. Well, to make a long story short, the jury returned with a first degree murder verdict. And there were two great things. The judge, who was a former prosecutor, called my dad and who does this and said, your son was fabulous. He did a really good job. And it, it touched me so much because my dad did this and for the judge to do that. But more importantly, I drove to tell the mother who was in Huntington Memorial Hospital in Pasadena about the verdict that the person that murdered her son was was held accountable. Mm. And she couldn't talk because she had a stroke. She grabbed my hand, squeezed it, and just started crying. Mm. And it was that moment that um, I knew that this was a calling for me, that I wake up to work and I love what I do like like you guys do. Mm. And this this was what I was meant to do. And I still keep in touch with her and uh, her son, although she she actually passed away a few years ago. But her son, Ollie, and I still keep in touch. Wow. Yeah. So that's who can say they get these type of rewarding experiences in their job, right? Yeah. Hmm. Like you're giving me the image that like there's so much love in you and compassion that I'm like, fuck, that this is not the what I would project when I think about America, lawyers, uh, prose prosecutors like I, I have another image that I that, but based on, you know, whatever comes my way in terms of movies and books and articles. Hmm. So this part I've never um, encountered. Well, to be a good prosecutor, 
it's a lot more than just uh, what you see on TV. Yeah. What's just as important is how you deal with the victim and family. I've mostly done murder cases and you're dealing with people who are grieving. And because I've done gang cases, mostly most of the time their child was killed um, oftentimes randomly Hmm. and they're trying to heal. They're trying to just wake up and breathe. And, um, you know, I've had some, my mother lost her brother at a very young age. And um, so our job is multifaceted. It's a lot more than just uh, going to court, I think. Yeah. I think. And I try to, well, now that I'm a manager, I try the best I can to instill this into the lawyers that I'm lucky enough to work with. There's a balance in there that I would think is incredibly hard because in a way it's a, like a paradox in order for you to do your job well you need to be utterly compassionate and supportive and loving and at the same time if you allow that to become too much in your system it would overwhelm you and you would just you would break down i assume so how does one balance the needing to be there fully for the client and keep it taking care of yourself you know like anything you experience you kind of learn how to compartmentalize yeah. You know, in order to to do my job for as long as I've done it, I've become pretty good at um, understanding and appreciating that what I do in court, I've got to be focused. Um, and uh, you really do have to be focused. Like what you're doing right now is what I do. Literally, you listen to what I say and then you follow up with the question. That's what a good trial lawyer does. You're focusing in on the witness, listen to what they say. And I do it like you're doing right now. It's just a conversation for yeah. the jury. And I try to be organic and authentic. My whole, when I'm with the jury, my whole thing is I want them to know that I am a truth teller and that they can trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I tried all my cases. Uh, but then you're right. Then when you're done and the family comes to you and they're saying, how's it going? And they're crying. Um, you have to quickly morph into something else. And it was hard at first, but over time you learn how to kind of compartmentalize and fill both roles. And I'm at the point now where um, it's hard not to take it home, but I got much better over time. I, I guess it's like a psychologist who's helping their patients. Yeah, You have to learn how to go home and not let that consume you or you're not going to be so good at your job and you're going to be very unhealthy emotionally. Do you ever bring the files home with like the murder pictures and everything? Andy, when I was trying cases, honestly, I couldn't sleep. I had to sleep with a legal pad next to my bed because thoughts would come to my head all the time. Yeah. And if I didn't have the ability to immediately jot it down, I could not sleep. I, I think I lost a lot of years of my life by being a trial lawyer. I, yeah. I couldn't sleep. I would stress out because I felt like the family was relying upon me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm so glad I'm not doing trials anymore. It's a young person's game. And at least for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned in the beginning, you were in this law firm and you're like, I can't do this. And it sounds like you kind of had that relationship also at being a prosecutor and yet you stayed. What was, what was it for you that made you stay in that tension? I love what I'm doing here. I believe in what I'm doing. I didn't love or believe what I'm doing back then. You know, it's funny. It took me 25 years in this office to make the same money that I made my first year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Amazing. 
Yeah. yeah. It's amazing how that works. Basically, you go in the private sector and you can make tons of money. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Have, have you ever prosecuted someone that later on was found uh, innocent? No. Um, great question. I've never found – our rule as a prosecutor is never over. So if I were ever to be given evidence um, that showed something that I didn't know about, I would immediately give it over to the defense. But I've never, ever had that experience. Now, I will tell you what I have done, which is a great question. My last assignment, one of the units I oversaw and I helped start was something called the Conviction Review Unit. And what we do is we look at cases that are already completed and we determine whether or not when there's new evidence that that maybe that new evidence shows that person didn't commit the crime. And during my tenure, there were five people that we overturned. We found new evidence. We could show they hadn't committed the crime and we released them. And I will tell you that that was more rewarding than anything else I've done in my career. And the amazing thing that I found, and I know Andy will be into this because you're into, you know, the depth of people, all of these people who had been in prison wrongly, they shouldn't have been in prison. They weren't angry. And I thought for sure they'd be angry. They were just grateful. And they were also stressed about how they were going to live the rest of their lives. Yeah. It's not so easy to spend all this time in prison, just get released and then immediately pick up. Yeah. Um, and um, the lawyers, I, I just manage, I didn't do the work, but the lawyers that do the work and dig and the investigators, I have so much respect for. And everybody should know that as prosecutors, it's not just about the conviction. Um, we're constant. We just want to get it right. So we've overturned them. And there's other things where I found a sentence to be too long, too draconian. And I've come back and we have the ability to change a sentence. So if someone's doing really well in prison and, you know, has a, 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 an opportunity to, to go to a place where they can a home that they can live in and and an opportunity to work. Um, we also will go back and lower sentences. So prosecutors are all about justice. Yeah, but the, the, you were just saying something now that when – and this sounds fundamentally different than anything I've ever heard. So the prosecuting office won't, like, defend against new new uh, evidence that comes in. It's actively looking for evidence to see if what it did was actually not correct. Is that, is that what that unit was out to do? Yes, there's, there's two things. Some, lots of times people make stuff up, and, of course – we have to defend a conviction all the time, but there's also a unit here uh, that my old boss, Jackie Lacey set up where all we do, we're just told if anybody says they have new evidence and their conviction was wrong, we look into it. And if we find that it was wrong, we're here to, to undo the conviction. And we did it five times. Uh, hmm. And uh, it was, I met all five of them and it was compelling and emotional. Wow. And, um, yeah. I mean, it's so weird because when you watch these Netflix documentaries, right, like the Netflix documentaries make prosecutors look so horrible because basically it says that they're dogmatic around when new evidence comes in. And of course, they're only showing one side of the story often in those documentaries, which is another hard thing. But is it would you say it's different in different areas within the U.S. or you think most people are kind of looking at it the way you are? Um, I really I don't. Great. I can't really answer about things outside of L.A. Yeah. because I, I don't know them. But mm -hmm. I can tell you that here in L.A., um, we are 
almost everybody is like this. Is everybody like this? Of course not. Okay. But are the vast majority without a doubt, without mm -hmm. a doubt. Um, have you ever been threatened by anyone that you were prosecuting? Yeah, that was yes. my big question. Yes. In fact, uh, I had to leave. The first time I was in gangs, uh, I tried this guy uh, who was a leader of a gang called Venice 13. And the day he was convicted, uh, we intercepted jail calls where he was saying he was going to have me killed. And all throughout Venice, there was graffiti that was sprayed that said 187 DA and 187 is the penal code section for murder. And um, so I had somebody stay at my house that night, uh, a detective, and they took me out of that. After that, that was the last time I, I tried cases against that gang. Uh, but I have to admit, when I heard the jail calls and I knew he was a shot caller, so he had the power to direct others to do whatever he wanted. I, that was the only time I was nervous. The other time I got, I was trying a misdemeanor spousal battery case. And so it's kind of minor. And the yeah. defendant was a firefighter and um, his wife was lovely. She was a nurse and the wife was beaten up and I was trying the case and I cross-examined uh, the firefighter. And I think I got under his skin when I was cross-examining him. And then there was a break and he, jumped out of the witness chair and he tackled me to the ground. And I learned that I'm not very tough because he certainly got the better of me and his lawyer had to pull him off of me. Wow. And uh, yeah. So those would be the two. Yeah. And what happened to him then? Because of course now he has a second assault because he's assaulted you as well. Yeah. They, they ended up detaining him for the rest of the trial. I, I didn't want to prosecute anything or file anything, I, Okay, but they detained him for the rest of the trial and uh, the jury found him guilty. He had a horrible temper. Did, so the jury, did, did the jury have to be sent away after they saw him do this to you? Because the jury course, didn't see it. The jury did didn't he, see it. Okay. He, the jury had left and he was out of custody. So he just, when he was walking back to his seat, he just tackled me. Wow. And fortunately, the, the uh, defense attorney was like 6'6 and a big guy. And yeah. uh, the firefighter was my size, but a uh, lot, lot stronger than me. So, I mean, you never, because I, I have to think to myself, if you've prosecuted a hundred murderers, then I would sleep at night being scared shitless that someone's going to say, hey, that guy put me in jail. I want revengeance. Like that would be a thought that would be lingering in the back of my head. But that wasn't, that wasn't, that wasn't so, true for you. You know, what's interesting, Andy, what's interesting is defendants, when they're convicted, they don't blame the prosecutor. If they blame anybody, they tend to blame their lawyer. Yeah. Why didn't you do this for me? Why didn't you do this? Because they have a relationship with them. They're the mm -hmm. ones they're talking to during the before the trial and then during it's the going to be OK. It's going to be OK. So they're kind of trying to pacify them in a way. Well, it could be something like maybe they didn't testify on their own behalf mm -hmm. and they're mad because they wanted to testify. But their attorney said for a lot of good reasons, yeah, you shouldn't testify. Like when you testify, for one example, if you have a prior record, it comes out to the jury. Or so there's so many re strategic reasons. So, but what I've learned is they don't get mad at us. They get, they mad, get mad at the, the poor defense. defense attorneys. Wow. I, I've always felt um, it's about, it's about the system in itself. When someone commits a crime, sending them to jail, as opposed to exploring, uh, like I, I, 
I kind of have a saying, I don't think there's bad people, it's just people doing stupid shit. So in a way, what was like, wow, what was happening for you when to commit such a crime, like, and explore that and help the individual connect as opposed to putting them in a place which actually they're much worse off than anything else, right? I have to tell you that, that this I disagree with. I don't think there's a lot of purely evil people, but I am really positive. There, there are some people that I have prosecuted, you know, like the guy I was talking about in Venice. We had tapes of him. He was evil where he would take dogs and cats and kill them slowly and would laugh as they would die. And he would film it. Mm. And you looked in his eyes and it looked like he had no soul. Thank God there's not many people like that, but I have prosecuted people that have no regard for human life. Mm. They're evil to the core. And I really don't believe, and, and again, I don't think there's many people, thank God, but if they're ever out of prison, I am positive that all they will do is hurt people. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and if you met them, yeah. uh, you would quickly pick up on this. Yeah, clearly. Um, quickly, yeah. Bola Long from South Africa, who's with us daily, he also says that the first time I understood the job of a prosecutor differently from my perception of it. And he asked a follow up question, which I find very interesting. And I had it earlier in the show as he said, in every job, there are people who are lazy and good at their job. So I think you say those that are good and not good, per se. But how is this manifest in the prosecution work? Like, and you, there must be times, and you ha- I know you have to kind of probably also be a bit diplomatic, that there is a prosecutor that may have gotten a guilty verdict and another that didn't get it because they weren't necessarily as good. How do you address that kind of uh, situation? That, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, you, like any job, you know, you watch sports on a team. Some people yeah. are just more skilled than others. Um, my job... Now that I'm a, I've been a manager for 17 years, believe it or not. My job is to help those that aren't as good get better and try to work with them. And, and this is what I love. It's like a coach, you know, there's a different key to unlock everyone's potential. And it's my job to try to find that. And if there's things, my job is to try to help them. So if there's someone who's not as good, it's my, so I'll give you an example. If somebody got a couple not guilty verdicts, but I know they're trying, the next case I'll assign them will be something where there's like a confession. So they can get their confidence up and we can try to build on that and talk about the things that went well, the things that didn't go well. Cause a lot of, a lot of it is just having the confidence that yeah. when you walk in, I can do the job. Mm. And then the ones that are really good, I feel like my job is to just get out of their way. (laughs) If they need something, I I try my best to help them. But, you know, uh, there's people that go to court and I watch them and I I genuinely say, I wish I could be this good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's funny because I think I live that way now is I only work and surround myself with people that are so good at their job that I would have no feeling like I can tell you how to do it better. So the guy that edits my books, you know, like when he said, asked me a question, it's like, hey, I'm trusting your judgment here. It, like it's, it's, it's your call. And, yeah. uh, and a lot of people don't feel that level of surrender. Cause you do have to say, Hey, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to let somebody else uh, take the resp- uh, the full responsibility. Yeah. And the other thing to, to follow up on that question that I think is really important is 
okay, so you get a not guilty verdict. You know, if, if you tried the case the right way, you didn't get the right result, that's okay. Hmm. The jury has the ultimate say. As long as we do what's, what's important and what's right, it doesn't matter. I'm, I, uh, I like what Burlang is saying. Burlang asked another question. He's following up on my question. I wonder whether those evil people were born like that or whether they were shaped by their experiences. Yeah, what are your feelings on that? When you're looking at this in the, in the eyes of a stone-cold killer, are you thinking to yourself, this guy was born with something innate, or do you think his parents and the society and the gang, and the, that that's shaped and formed him? I think it's both. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, gangs are territorial. Like every gang is like, I'll give you an easy one, like 18th Street. It's all about being controlling your whatever your neighborhood is. That's what they're about. Um, I think some people, you know, you can see it when you're younger. Some people just are not as nice as others. and But it's both. So you may be born that way. And then through circumstances, like maybe you live in a very poor area. Maybe you're, par- you're a single parent who has to work all the time. So you don't have someone to look after you. And the gangs kind of become your extended family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that come into play. And I think usually it's a combination of each. Uh, and, and the other thing that's interesting is there's a lot of people that have murdered and then they go into prison and they realize they made a mistake and they kind of reform. And then there's other people who murder and they go into prison and they murder more, even though they're in prison. Yeah. So there's a lot of different, you know, there's a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of divergences here. Yeah. When you watch an NCSI show, would you ever watch an NCSI show or is it like the, I've never, I've never seen one. It's a show that sort of shows a, what a prosecution office would look like, theoretically, what it would be like for him in his daily life. You've never watched one. I will not watch legal shows. I find them to be completely inaccurate. And, and uh, yeah, the only thing I watch on, on uh, I watch sports and um, news. And Nice, because uh, you know, one of, uh, one of the... Uh, Graduates from Notre Dame High School, there's a new show, NCSI Hawaii, Jason Antoon, who was uh, a year below or two below me, he's now in that show. So basically, he's going to pretend to do the job you do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I know it, it does very well, right? That show? Yeah, those shows do well. Yeah, no? they do well. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're just the show of uh, homicide investigations and things. Um, well, if, I, if they've got time to watch that, they've got time to watch our show, right? Yeah, it's funny because we asked another guest who was doing a lot, and it was it was a divorce lawyer who uh, yeah. came on, and we asked if she'd watched any film around divorce, and she's like, "Absolutely not. I would never spend any time. It's just it's almost too painful. Why would I continue the pain past what I need to?" Yeah, interesting. And that's how I feel. I I don't want to. I live it during my professional time, so during my free time, I. Uh, I, and I find it so mostly so inaccurate. In fact, yeah. if, if you like to, the best show I've seen that I watched is called Bosch. Yeah, B-O-S-C-H. I watched, I watched Bosch yeah. a bit. Yes, I think that's the most accurate yeah. nice. uh, show I've seen. Portrayal. Yeah. So you have a skill set. You're really good at argument and finding, putting together a case. How did that help you get married? Uh, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> that's so funny. Um, <laughs> I got lucky, you know, I got very lucky. Um, Yeah. And I've learned that with my wife, you know, 25 years of marriage, 
Mm. Um, I've learned that she's when in court, you're always uh, have the opportunity to kind of, you know, I've never tried a case where I know I don't have the evidence. But with my wife, I never do have the evidence. (laughs) Yeah. So. Uh, I, I was about to say, like, that, that was the intention. Like, if there's yeah. an argument, how the hell do you get out of that one? Yeah. All the <laughs> rules go out the window. You submit. Yeah. And you say you're right. And I'm sorry. And I love you. Uh, and I love you. And, and, and I'm lucky. She's, she's, uh, I'm very, very lucky in so many ways. And that's just another way I've been very blessed. What's her name? So, Megan. Megan, did you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> and we have two daughters who are 22 and 20. So I'm I'm the only uh, male presence in the home. I remember how enthusiastic Brian was because I went to their wedding party and I met his parents-in-law and they we really had this wonderful talk together. And Andy looked at me and ama- he just looked at me and he's like, Andy, it's amazing how you've yeah. connected with these people so immediately. So that's what... That that's wasn't easy, said. Andy. That wasn't easy. <laughs> well... Consider it part of movie magic. <laughs> um, Truly. You talked a lot about gangs. And it's interesting for me because you, you threw out names so matter of fact. So how many gangs are there in L.A.? Oh, um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. There's hundreds and hundreds of gangs? The gang problem in L.A. is horrible. It's horrific. And... You know, one thing for sure, when you're by yourself, it's a lot more difficult to have the courage to go out there and and kill somebody than when you're with other people. Mm. That's why drive-by shootings, for example, are so common. There's strength in numbers, and you also get your your courage together to do this in numbers. You know, you encourage one another. um, You say, come on, are you chicken? We need to do this. And, and that's why gangs are dangerous. I really feel that groups empower. And yeah. when people are by themselves, they can kind of take a deep breath and go, no, this is silly. But you, know, you have tapes, you know, sometimes you can get tapes of them. You surreptitiously tape people. And there's no doubt in my mind that in L.A., gangs are the biggest problem that we have with crime, Un- wow. undoubtedly. And when you when you say there's hundreds, would you know those hundreds or a large percentage by name? No, because okay. there's so there there L.A. County is so big, and there's yeah. such I, I know the ones that I've prosecuted. Yeah, but L.A. County is so so. For example, like in Pomona or Long Beach or Antelope they, they, Valley, I don't know. Got, they've, they've all got their own gangs, basically. Correct. Okay. Like now there's a couple of huge gangs like in the prisons there's the Mexican mafia and that's and, what they're called? Yeah, and they're very powerful. Um in prison. In prison, yes, they're very very powerful. Like um, when you say oh, yeah. they're powerful, what it, what is what what makes them powerful? They can do a hit or something outside of the prison, is that what Oh yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. And they do. Yeah. Scary. Yes. And, uh, and when they I scare me, that, that, that's the one they would scare me. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, you know, the Crips and the Bloods, those are the ones that I knew when I was in the 80s. And are they still around? Yes. But that's a broad term. Okay. Um, there's many, like the Crips and the Bloods, there's like a hundred subsections of each. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, but they're still around for sure. Okay. Yeah, like, for sure. Yeah. 
What kind of ethnicities would you say are the majority of gangs orient, orientating from? You know, they they come in 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 everything. You've got white gangs. There's the, uh-huh. there's the Aryan Brotherhood. You have the Hispanic gangs. You have the African American gangs. You have the Asian gangs. They're all territorial. Okay, so um, they really are ethnic. They're ethnically. Com- that's basically what brings them together. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Wow. Yeah. And what do they all have in common besides being a gang? They they live for the day. Wow. They don't think about tomorrow. Yeah. There's they they live about only thinking about the present. And one thing that's always interesting is you can tell on a lot of these people they never realize or thought about the consequences of the decisions they've made. And then when they get caught, you can almost see like, holy shit. Um, you know, now there's some that are just so evil, but there are some, they're like, I never like a driver in a drive-by is as liable for the shooting as the shooter. Is that and right? They may think, yeah. And they may think I didn't shoot this person. I just drove them to the crime scene and all that. Oh my God. So I'm also facing the same sentence because you're what's called legally an aider and a better, you know? Mm. And so you're just as liable as the shooter. Wow. So they don't know that, that now they're facing the potential. But, the, of, but in general, if those two people were tried, the one that was driving, would they tend to get the same prison sentence as the shooter? Yes. Fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah. I always just, I mean, it seemed so obvious to me on one level that we all search for some level of belonging. Community. In community. So it's like fulfilling a human need and it's done in a way that just is totally dysfunctional. You know, that's just sort of seems. Uh, Beautifully said. Yeah. And the murder rate right now is higher than it's been in a long time in L.A. Yeah. It's really bad. Do you have do you have so many murders coming in that you can't manage them? I mean, is it do you ever guys get overwhelmed so that it's like, wow, we're in it. We're, we're like we don't have enough people to. Yes. To, yes. Wow. wow. Yeah. I mean, right now in my office, we have people handling 30 murder cases that that's impossible. Yeah. You can't give those cases the time and attention they need with that type of volume. It is it is impossible. So and then you've got, say, a celebrity who has an incredible defense team, which means you would have to put up more time and energy just to prosecute that one individual. Yeah, we have we have a major crimes unit that okay. deals with those. Like, for example, I have a very good friend who's trying uh, that billionaire Robert Durst right now. OK, um, like I think he there was a show called The Jinx. OK, um, and they have a smaller caseload. Typically with gangs, they don't have the money to do that. Oh, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, um, you can't handle 30 murders and, yeah. and do a good job. It's it's impossible. So how do you handle it? You do the best you can. Um, you hope that you're not doing back to back to back to back trials, because if you are, you don't have the time you need to prepare and familiarize yourself with everything. Um, Will you ever get pulled in like as a second in a in a trial or something because you're needed for some expertise? Um, I could. It hasn't happened. But yeah. I, when I was when I was in gangs, I'm no longer there now. I'm in a division called major narcotics. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in gangs, I was constantly every afternoon. I spent the afternoon watching trials so that I could help the lawyers answer questions. Sometimes they just needed validation. Like, did it go OK? Yes. Yeah. 
wasn't that defense attorney or that judge a jerk? Yes. Uh-huh, Whatever yeah. they needed, I tried to be there for them because I know that they're going, they're doing all the tough work. So my role, I think, was to just support them in any way that that I could. It's kind of fascinating because when you talk about it that way, there's it's it's a it's like a snapshot of the most intense moment in a person's life or one of the most. And it's all coming down to this 30, 40, maybe it's few hours. Who knows how big, how long a trial would be. And it's almost like their life is being determined in this short period of time. And there's an intensity for everyone that's playing in it that, that it's, it's like, but imagine that being every single day of your life playing in the most intense moments of these other individuals' lives. It's a, uh, it's got a, it's got a wear on you. Yeah. I, I marvel at the people who are doing this. I, I just marvel at their, and most, and they have great attitudes and it's their job to not just know the case, but when they go from one case to the other, to give that family as well, whatever they need. Yeah. Um, and they do it. And uh, I just have so much admiration for them. Um, have I you really been do. in? Have you been in any? Because because L.A. and the nature of L.A. being next to Hollywood and having all of the media there, are you uh, also seeing a lot of celebrity sort of uh, cases coming onto your uh, into your area or into your groups that you're working? Not really, yeah. not really. I mean, in my last assignment, I was uh, supervised extradition, so I was reading the stuff. Harvey Weinstein was extradited from yeah. uh, New York to L.A. Yeah. But we don't have that many celebrity cases. Yeah. You'd be surprised. And usually it's like a something not as big, like a DUI or yeah. something like that. You know? Yeah. Lower case. Yeah. Bolalong, again from South Africa, says when Brian is said about gangs is the same reason that he thinks the political parties are dangerous compared to independent politicians. Which is interesting. So basically he's saying if you get enough people together that have power and authority over other people that they won't wield it with grace and love. There, there is power in numbers. Yeah. You know, there, 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 there's a reason that groups are formed. Mm. And I think there's a lot of power in, in, in having a group. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the politics here right now in, in our country are certainly divided and, um, I'm pretty I, when I watch the news, I've never seen our country so divided politically no, and it makes me very, uh, very nervous. Yeah, it's sad. I view it daily. And when you look at things and another word that that the, I, I'm always conscious when I say things, I also sometimes have to uh, explain them to Bambos. Uh, this, there's a term that's used sentencing guidelines. Yeah. So so basically how long people are being put away for these crimes. Now, there's been a lot of the talk about these minor infractions with drugs where people have been. And then you'll see people with major uh, things that are going away for very short times. So how do you kind of reconcile that now? Because as we evolve, we're like marijuana is legal. And yet there's people sitting in prison today because they smoke marijuana. Well, in L.A. County. We dismissed 60,000 cases two years ago. So there's 60. nobody sitting at, yeah, there's nobody sitting in prison on a marijuana case in LA County. So, so when you say you dismissed, they would have, would they have been in prison or would they have no. been going? No, no. It, it, possessing marijuana in LA County, even before that is the same as a traffic ticket. Okay. So 
Um, now, in other jurisdictions and other places, I don't know, but I can tell you in L.A. County, and I'm now in charge of major narcotics, mm-hmm. um, there's nobody doing time uh, on marijuana cases. Wow. And, and sentencing guidelines, like when are there sentencing guidelines you look at and you say this, it just doesn't feel right. Just n- not not because it isn't stated in the law, but just in your heart says this just doesn't feel right for this crime. Does that does that happen when you when you're looking at this stuff? No, I, I actually think they're they're pretty reasonable. You know, for example, I think that if you use a gun, you should spend more time in prison than if you didn't use a gun. Mm-hmm. If you commit great bodily injury, if I rob somebody and I pistol whip you and cause you to have eight stitches in your head, you should do more time than someone who just grabbed your wallet. Yeah. So I, I believe in that stuff. Yeah. Um, I really I, I, I do. Um, so and the sentencing guidelines, at least here, they're not as much as people think. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really not. And there's been a movement in L.A. County where um, jails and prisons, we've been releasing a lot of people out of jail and prisons. Um, And it'll be interesting to see if that leads to more crime or not. And what what, what are your feelings about that? Do you believe it will or not? It's a great question. This is what I believe. I believe that we need to invest so much more money into mental health and into programs. And what I don't like is if you're going to release thousands of people, it's unfair to just say, here you go, go onto the streets. What's going to happen? It's going to add to the homeless problem. It's going to add to the drug problem. What we need to do is invest in services. We got to make sure they have a place to live and a purpose. And we need to invest in counseling, getting them jobs. Now, everybody in prison is $60,000 a year. Why can't we put that money for the one year in prison into counseling services, making sure they have a place to live and a purpose when they wake up in the morning? If we invested in that, that would work. I don't like the idea, however, of someone being in prison and just letting them go without help. Then you're going to have a lot more recidivism. We have a responsibility to help them. And if we do, I really think most of them will be great. Yeah. But we're not investing in that. And until we do, I think we've got big problems. And wh- why do you think we're not investing? What would be the reason in your eyes? Great question. My, my honest feeling is politicians want to use the money for other purposes. You know, they tend to have, you know, you know uh, an expression we have is pork here, like pork barrel. They tend to they tend to want to distribute revenues and funds into other things in order to get everybody's consumed with getting reelected and they don't see the bigger picture and they don't what people should be motivated. Like you see it in the Senate and the Congress and it just trickles down. They they don't care about the country. They don't care about doing what's right. They just care about being reelected, right? Each political party, whatever you are, is just consumed with making their party and their constituents happy and doesn't see the bigger picture. Hmm. Uh, I'll give you an easy example. How could anybody be against common sense gun control? Who would say that anybody should be able to go to a gun show and grab and get guns, semi-automatic weapons? um, What's wrong with a waiting period? What's the urgency? Who could disagree? 
I was yeah. going to say, the urgency yeah. is because I got someone I want to kill and I need a gun tomorrow. I mean, that's the urgency, you know? That's right, Andy. Yeah. And yet, it's still allowed in the United States. Hmm. So is, you have there, to ask yourself are why. There st- sorry to interrupt, but is there are there statistics that show what percentage of killings or murders are done in terms of the days after a, a firearm was purchased? Are there studies like that that say that at 30, 40 percent of all, all murders are done the day after a gun is purchased? Is there stuff? You know, I wish there I'm not aware of any studies. I wish yeah. there was. But mm. when you see these what I see over and over again, when you see these mass, these murders of dozens of people that just are the ultimate tragedies, they tend to get a weapon that day and they're acting impulsively. And if there was just a way to have a background check and a waiting period, you know, and and we certainly don't need, you know, automatic assault rifles where you can fire 60 rounds in 30 seconds. I don't understand the purpose behind that or body piercing, you know, body piercing ammunition. Um, So, but yet it hasn't passed because so many people are so afraid of alienating the NRA and they're not, I just use this as an easy example. So they're not looking at doing what's right. They're concerned about their ability to get reelected. And that's what I see nationally and locally. Everybody is concerned with their own political future and not concerned with doing the days of Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Yeah. Those are gone. Those are gone. Integrity is out the window. So it really, really is. Why isn't that a crime then? Yeah. Interesting. Negligence. Yeah. Why, why, why have we not made that level of negligence a crime actually, which is quite amazing when you say that that way. It's, you know, the only thing you can do right now, it's a great question is you can try to sue them civilly. But that hasn't actually worked very well. But in my opinion, it should be some type of crime. But more importantly, in my opinion, is they need to pass common sense legislation. And it hasn't happened. Do you know why? Yeah, uh, because the Benjamins, the Benjamins, there's the the National Rifle Association. Yeah, the NRA has a lot of power and control in our country. Yeah. And they give a letter grade to every politician. And in certain parts of our country, it's very important to have an A grade by the NRA. And so they're not willing to do anything to uh, to upset them. And I'm just giving an example. No, I mean, it's an obvious an example, which is just it makes my stomach turn. Common sense is not very common, they say. No, no, it's not common nowadays. Uh, you leave your office and you walk on the streets of L.A. and it is a shit show. Like, I can't tell you how amazed I was at the level of homelessness that's rampant, like on a level that I, I, I think if I try to explain it, like I can't give words to, I turned down one street with Ronnie and I was scared shitless. And I'm in a car with locked doors. I said, Ronnie, we're, and I know Ronnie's, you know, she's from Indonesia. So she's used to kind of a, a, like from her childhood, there was also a bit of people living on the street, but she's, she's saying, Andy, like this is worse than Indonesia right now. Like I, I thought that 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 America. So when when there's those type of environments, they must be breeding because no one's thinking about hey, I'm not gonna. Uh, it, uh, there, there must be violence going on in these places and crime. Or how is that? It's. I work downtown Los Angeles. I can't walk anywhere because there are so many homeless people and. As a result, there's also a lot of crime 
and a lot of drugs. And the problem we have, and there's no easy solution, you can't, let's say you see a homeless person and you want to help them. You can't give them housing or food. Like you want to say, there's an opening in a hotel. Can we please put you in there? You can sober up. We will feed you. You will have a clean bed. They have to say yes. And they don't say yes because you can't use drugs there. Mm. And so we have this inherent struggle where the homeless population gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you can't help anybody unless they want help and nobody wants help. And crime as a result is really going up there. And I think disease goes up because you know, there's no cleanliness. No. Um, and it's profoundly sad. And I think there are a lot of things that can be done, but people aren't willing. And it, it all starts with providing mental health services, Yeah. yeah. but, but people aren't willing to invest in this and it's very sad. Yeah. But you won't walk around there though. It's just, no, no. got it. So you're a prosecutor. You've seen, you've seen enough and you've heard your ears and eyes have seen enough. So when you are living your life and walk and driving or whatever, going through life, you probably see the world with a different lens. And when you travel to other countries, does that lens follow you? You know, is it, I haven't traveled as much as I wish I would have because, you know, it's tough financially. Um, but I will say this. I find the people in other countries to be a lot friendlier than I find here and a lot more trustworthy. You won't find anybody in Los Angeles that doesn't lock their door at night. Mm. And when someone comes to your door, your instinct is deadbolt it and be really, really, really careful. And what I've seen in my limited time in Europe and other places is there's a lot more community spirit, a lot more trust. Um, but, you know, I think it starts with the fact that for whatever reason in America, gun violence is so dramatically worse than anywhere else. Yeah. Um yeah, the yep. statistics, when they show the statistics, it's embarrassing to look at. You can't even – it's like there are statistics where they're so f absurd that when you look at the numbers of comparative to the U.S. this month against the world the last five years, you know, and, and it'll be like massively way yes. over whatever. And so they're, they're, it's it's so far-fetched, it's it's become comical, and it, and it would be funny if people weren't dying every day. And that I mean that that that's the saddest part of it is that what 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 just keeps perpetuating is this whole thing that no one will touch the NRA or is anxious to ruffle these feathers. But I think even if you try to put regulations, there's so much prevalence of guns out there. I don't even know how you could do it now. It's I agree, Andy. And the other thing that I'm hoping happens beyond besides the mental health, Andy, and gun common sense gun legislation is policing. We need to emphasize community policing. It's, it's so important. What I mean by that is if you patrol the same area every day, you start to learn the people. So let's say they say, oh, there's Brian. He may be mumbling and he may be saying crazy stuff, but I know he's harmless. Yeah. So I'm not going to overreact. Having that type of intimate knowledge of a neighborhood or a community or knowing who to talk to, knowing 
okay, I know how to, I can talk to this person and they can deescalate this situation. We need a lot more of that. And if we had that, we could avoid so many problems, I think. Yeah. How do you yeah. feel about that? Because in some ways, you know, you're on the side of the police officers and, you know, obviously police officers are being like just attacked uh, verbally by everyone and their dogs nowadays. So and you're seeing these people. And of course, you see the humanity in these people going out, risking their lives day after day and then and then putting themselves in harm's way and not even being seen in appreciation for it, which is doubly as painful. It's like, so how is it on your end to have that that like, contact with them? Well, I'll start by saying if you're a, a dirty cop, I've prosecuted dirty cops before. I've gone to trial and prosecuted them. But the vast, vast majority of police officers are amazing people. They risk their lives every day. I see what they do that nobody knows about, where they have courage. You know, For example, they're executing a search warrant, and they don't know what's going to be behind that door, but they're trying to uncover a bunch of guns or something they have the courage to get in there and have no idea if they're going to get out. Uh, I see how they treat people with kindness and the homeless, they put on their gloves, especially during COVID and they're doing their best to help people. Um, And it is profoundly sad at the hostility that takes place. Mm. But the problem is the few bad apples and television. If you look at television, it's amazing. They never, even though there's obviously more good acts than bad acts, what do you see on TV? Yeah. What what sells, that's right. So everybody gets this perception because that's all you see on the news over and over. When's the last time you saw a good action by a police officer where they're like, look at what Officer Chalif did today? You never, ever see that. And because of that, it shapes and forms opinions. And there is a history in the past of racism that we cannot ignore. Yeah. I think that's really changed because – and it still needs to change, but there's better education. The police forces now are so diverse. It's not just all – they're incredible diversity now in these yeah. police departments. Mm-hmm. But but it, it has to start by the media, which I think is the biggest evil yeah. in our society. I You turn on a channel, and I already know. If I turn on Fox, I'm going to hear one truth. And if I turn on MSNBC or CNN, I'm going to hear another truth. And they report according to an agenda. And I wish they would just report the facts. Yeah, It's two different worlds when you watch the news. And it's really, really, really sad. Yeah. Yeah, it's really sad. Which is why we don't watch the news. Yeah. Well, I, (laughs) you know, I almost... I almost sort of was watching it, of course, during the Trump era, because I was almost like it was like this bad train wreck. And I couldn't get my eyes off. It seemed like this is going to you know, where is this going to crash? And the funny thing was, is the insurrection. I was relieved. I'm like, okay, that was it. Like not knowing that there could be more, of course, coming. But at that moment, it's like, wow, I thought it'd be so much worse than this. Like that was my story. My narrative was like, it's going to be so bad that just an insurrection. That's not that bad. I thought some, <laughs> someone would trigger Trump and he would push the button. I, who knows? I could have gone so many ways. The one thing that's hard for me in life, and this is not only with police, it's with everything and everyone, is that I'm always aware that there's biases that I'm not aware of in myself, but they're so <laughs> endemic. And so so in, in, in a mm-hmm. weird way, it's no matter what the police start to learn or grow, there's always going to be ways in which they're not treating 
African-Americans and whites and Hispanics the same because they'll be inbred. I don't even want to I don't want to like label it in the negative because then we start judging. I want to state it exists because we can't see what we don't know. And, and, and it's that's the wondrous space I try to live in myself where I'm always discovering new biases or new prejudices that I didn't wasn't even aware that I had. And, yeah. and, I, and I don't know how you how that shifts in uh, in the police force or in even in your prosecuting offices. Every human being has implicit biases. And I think it starts, Andy, by saying what you just did. You have to acknowledge that they that they have them. They exist and that all of us. All of us have these implicit biases. I think that's the, the first thing. And then the second thing is you have to have training so yeah. that when it comes up, you start to recognize, oh, wow, I'm forming a judgment. So I think it's a combination of one. You have to do what you just did and acknowledge that it's a part of all of us yeah. so that you're receptive to understanding it's a, it's a truth. And then two, we have to do training. And then three, I think it's critical that police departments have diversity. Yeah. Because um, if it's all the same person, that's very unhealthy and leads to problems. But if you have a diversity, if your part, if you're white and your partner is black or your uh -huh. partner is Hispanic, you start to the partners become so close, and you start to realize, okay, they're everyone's just a human being, and we're all doing our best. Yeah. And so I think I think having a police force that reflects your community and reflects society is critical and there's and now we're really starting to do that yeah because what was happening is people become police officers at a really young age you know when you're 21 22 23 you know nothing exactly you don't yeah. have the life experiences yet and you have a gun and a badge Oof. and you don't have the life experiences yet to make these decisions mm -hmm. and some people went lived in areas where they haven't been exposed to different types of people yeah. And so the first time they're exposed to them is when they see them on the streets and they're that's scared and, and, they're, and, they're, and they're scared out of their head. And now they need to defend yes. themselves. Yeah. And that's a recipe for disaster. Totally. So I think it should start with you don't come on patrol until a minimum age. Yeah. There has to be there's no life is the best teacher. Yeah. And so there has to be life experiences. There has to be the proper training. Yeah. Um, Assessments. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I, I yeah. think I, that's something I wish we could change. But I, there's a practical problem, too, which is, at least in L.A., nobody wants to be a police officer anymore. Yeah. Why would you? Yeah. My God. Right. So, so when you, you know. get them, you want them. Yeah, yeah they're, they're, it's truly like they're not getting enough applicants. Yeah, I get so imagine. they're having a compromise. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've gone what we've gone over our hour. I uh, shot by. But uh, thank you for joining us. It was really uh, uh, great to be with you. Andy, I love you. Love it's you great seeing you. I'm just so glad and, and great meeting you. And I'm just so glad you to see how well name. you're you doing. You forgot my name. What's that? <laughs> you forgot my name, didn't you? No, I, I don't want to mispronounce your name, to be honest. Try it. Let's just see it. Let's test them. Bravos? Ah, I got it. <laughs> nice to try that, to that catch was them it. out. Yeah, Bravos, that was it. Your questions were great. And you can tell you're such a nice guy. And I love that you two are doing this. And thank you for letting me participate. Thank you. Yeah. Brian, thank you. Much thank love you, Brian. Thank you so much. That must be mm. really beautiful to be connecting with someone from the past and actually sharing all that love. Yeah. Yeah, it was I, I was you, you saw 
when we went into this show before Brian came on, I was far more protective than I might be of other guests. You noticed, of course, in that uh, I, I didn't know to what degree, you know, if he, you know, I'm always looking at that anxiety that if someone's prosecuting 100 people, who knows who wants to kill him? You know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and, and what information would create potential problem in people's lives that like that's the one thing i don't want a show to be we get into serious topics but it's always hard for me if uh the topic then becomes a problem in their lives that's just not the intention of this show nor do we want that responsibility no no so it was really great to uh to spend the hour and then we uh what do we have tomorrow monday episode 249 dealing with people who have judgment with me and him yeah bambo said this was a really good topic to dig into and i think it is because uh, we have uh, people in our lives that are, have a lot of judgment. The judgment can be towards things or it can be towards us. And uh, and we said, let's have a discussion around how to navigate those situations that aren't very comfortable. Yeah. We're going to do that Monday on a wonderful chaos, chaos, wonderful. It is. It is. It's a wonderful chaos. We-